Well, good morning. Hope you are doing well this morning. I just want to start off by just uh, saying it's definitely an exciting morning for, for me and for my family. Uh, morning we've been praying over for quite some time, but I also just wanted to thank you guys as a church. Stables Mill has been very gracious to us uh, all through this process and, and even just the support of of us as missionaries, Ascent missionaries. It's just, it's a sweet, sweet time to be back here with you guys and, and just to get to open the word with you, uh, which is what I'm most excited about doing this morning. It's always a privilege and an honor to open the word of God. Um, and, and I'm excited about what the Lord has for us as he, he uses his words to shape us. And so as we do that, um, let's just be open to what the Lord has for us this morning. And, and as we uh, consider the text in front of us, which is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, I want to start by asking you this. Why are you here? And I don't mean that in a philosophical, like, why do I exist type question, but literally, why are you here where you're at this morning in that seat in church? Why are you here? Why did you get up this morning? Uh, maybe earlier than you wanted to on a Sunday. Maybe you struggled to get your kids ready, get out the door, get here on time. Why did you do it? Why did you come to church? And you may say, well, Christians are supposed to go to church, which is true. Uh, you might say, well, this is just what I do. I've always just done this. And again, it's, it's good and right that that's the case. Maybe you'd say this if you're a, a student or a younger kid. My parents made me come to church, right? That's the only reason I'm here. That would have been me at times in my life. My parents made me go to church. Maybe you, you'd offer up the response, I came to worship which is absolutely true. But that's the question we're going to consider. And ultimately, it really boils down to this. What's the point, right? Why do we come to church? Why are we here? And as we consider that big question, there is a point to all of this. I assure you there is, and we need to know the reasons behind it. And so we're going to look at three reasons why we come to church. The first one would be just why we worship in general. We're going to see that from the text. And the second thing is we're going to consider why we need to be here, what it does for us. But then thirdly, we're going to consider what it does for others. And so that's where we're going. And before we do that, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We come before you. We come into your presence this morning. We know it's only because of Christ. We know it's because of nothing that we have done. It's because of nothing that we can do, and it's because of nothing that we will do, but we, we solely come before you because of Christ, who at this very moment is at your right hand interceding on our behalf, which is just such a marvelous thought to consider. And so as we open your word, as we come before you in worship this morning, may we uh, be open to what you have. May, may we glorify you with, with how we respond, and we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text this morning, as I said, is Hebrews 10, 19 through 25, and it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So our three commands we find in this text start with the words, let us, and then we see it three times, and the first one we see is, let us draw near. So that's the first one we're going to consider. 
To draw near simply means to come. It simply means to approach. And we are told to come near. And in verse 19, we're told to enter into the holy places. And so you pair that with what we find in Hebrews 4, where it says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We know that we are commanded to draw near to God. We are commanded to draw near to God. Another way to put it would be we are called to worship. That's a more common way we would put it. Instead of drawing near to God, we would say we are to worship. What does it mean to worship? That's a word we use often. And it's a word that we sometimes gloss over. But what does it really mean to worship? The commonality of it shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't allow us not to pause and consider that. Because if you would really stop and consider what we're being told to do, it's a pretty significant thing. We are told to draw near to the throne of grace. We are told to come before God Almighty. Right? If you're an Old Testament Israelite, or if you're uh, one of the Hebrews who were reading this letter originally, and you hear that, that you're to draw near to God, it most likely would have instilled in you fear and panic. Because to draw near to God was a fearful, fearful thing. Pastor Jim referenced this text last week, actually. But in Isaiah, when he has that vision of the throne room of God, what is his response to that? It, he says, woe is me, right? For I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm undone. What he recognized was in the presence of a God that is that holy, he realized that he was that sinful, right? To be in the presence of God exposes us. And, and not only that, but in Leviticus 16, we read this in, in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So there we're told that Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, they drew near to God improperly. And because of it, they were killed. Right. And so Aaron's told, hey, um, if you're going to draw near to me, you need to draw near to me in just the right way and in exactly the right manner. In fact, only one time of year. Um, could they do that where the, the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies? And if he didn't follow God's exact and specific command, he would have died, right? It was a fearful thing to enter into the presence of the Lord. But yet here in Hebrews 10, the amazing thing is we are told to draw near to the throne of God, to the holy places with confidence, right? How in the world can we confidently draw near to a God that is this holy when we know that we are this sinful. Well, as verses 19 through 21 tell us, it's only because of Christ. It's only because of Jesus Christ. Those three verses in 19 through 21 are actually a fantastic summary of the entire first nine and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews. They're, they're painting for us a very clear and concise picture of what the author is driving at, and it's this. Jesus Christ, the one who is supreme, the one who is overall, the one who is above all, the one who has always been and will always be, he is our great high priest. He is the one who made this possible, right? It goes on to tell us that he's the founder and perfect, perfecter of our faith, right? Jesus is, is the, the issuer of our salvation. And by his new covenant, he purchased an eternal redemption by his blood. And it's through his blood that he opened up a new and living way for us to have access to God. And so now as believers, as people who have placed our hope in this Christ, we have uninhibited, we have consistent, and we have confident access into the presence of the Lord. It's only through 
Christ. Hebrews also reminds us that Christ is greater than all that came before. Everything that came before was just a shadow of what was and who was to come. It tells us that he's greater than Moses. It tells us that he's greater than the law. It tells us that he's greater than the entire sacrificial system. In fact, Hebrews 7.25 tells us this. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's, he's alive, right? That's what, that's what we're reading there. It's because of his sinless life. It's because of his sacrifice where he was willing to go to the cross on our behalf, to take God's wrath upon himself and, and to die for us, but not stay dead, resurrect, right? Defeating sin and death. It's because he's alive and he's currently at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf that we draw near. This is how we draw near. This is why we're here this morning. This is the only way we're here this morning. It's all because of Christ. A simple way to put this would be this is the gospel, right? This is what we claim. This is what we proclaim. Francis Schaeffer says this, the central message of biblical Christianity is the possibility of men and women approaching God through the work of Christ. And that's so true. It's only through Christ that we even have this possibility to approach God Almighty. Because of the gospel, we've been given a new heart. Our text there in Hebrews 10 says a true heart. It reminds us of Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Because of this gospel, we have full assurance of faith, as Hebrews 10 also tells us. You know, it's because it's not dependent on us. If it was dependent on us to draw near to God appropriately, we wouldn't be able to do it. We're, we're sinful, sinful people. We needed Christ, and that's the difference, right? We still draw near as sinners. Most all of us probably did something wrong this week, transgressed the law of God in some way, and yet we draw near confidently. How? It's only because of Christ. That's the only way we worship. That's what we sang about this morning, right? It's all because of Christ. Sinners saved by grace, covered by the righteousness of Christ. That is the difference. And because of this, our hearts have been sprinkled clean. Again, using that, that Old Testament sacrificial system language. Our, our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. See, we're a privileged people. That's what we are. So why do we go to church? Why do we come here to worship? It's because we get to, right? It's because we can. It's because we're commanded to, and it's because he alone is worthy of our worship, right? It's all because of, by, and through Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for us, right? This is why we come to worship. So instead of asking, why would we do this? Instead, I think we should flip the question and ask, why wouldn't we do this, right? Why wouldn't we come to worship? And you may be thinking, well, I don't need the church to worship, right? Aren't, aren't I commanded in scripture to worship God in all areas of my life? Aren't I commanded to, to give my life as a living sacrifice to him, as Romans 12 tells us? Absolutely we are, but we are commanded to be part of the church, and it's because we need the church, okay? We need the church in our lives. Look at verse 23 of Hebrews 10. It says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So here we're commanded to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. So first we need to understand what this word confession means. We usually understand confession one of two ways. And the first way we understand confession is as an admission of guilt. 
All right, so there was this time when I was uh, about 18, I was dating my, my girlfriend, Savannah, now my wife, Savannah, and she lived about 40 minutes from my house, and I was still living at home, and so I still had a curfew, and I had to be home by midnight uh, every night, like no, no questions asked, I had to be home by midnight, and so she lived 40 minutes away, so to get home on time, I had to leave by 11.20, right, simple math. Um, but, you know, me wanting to maximize my time with her, uh, one night I decided, you know what, I'm not going to leave until about 11.25, right? So shaving five minutes off the, off the time to get home. And you know what, I made it. Made it with plenty of time to spare, actually, which means, what am I going to do the next time? I'm going to push the envelope just that little bit further, you know? And so this time, I don't leave until about 11.30. And you know what? I still made it. Okay, I knew those roads like the back of my hand. I was able to get there with time to spare. And so, you know where this is going. The next time, I pushed the envelope that little bit further. But this time, um, I had the privilege of meeting a man who was driving a car with flashing lights um, on top of it. And uh, he, he clocked me doing 75 and a 40. Okay, um, pretty big fine, pretty big ticket that I get at that moment. And so, uh, I'm driving home. I'm concocting this plan. All right, I'm going to go to traffic court. If I go to traffic court and I plead my uh, guiltiness, right, I, I admit to them that, that I was speeding, they're going to look at me as this responsible 18-year-old who was willing to come to court and plead his, uh, his guiltiness, confess his, his transgression, and they were going to let me off scot-free. I went to court. I pled my guiltiness. And I paid the fine, right? That's what I had to do. I, I still had to pay the fine. And to pay the fine, I actually had to go to my younger sister and borrow money from her. And you know what she did? She charged me interest <laughs> to pay that back, okay? She charged me interest, which was pretty incredible. But it stopped me from having to confess to my parents, stopped me from having to admit guilt to my parents. That's one way to understand this word confession. The second way, and the way the author uses it here, is to understand it as a, a public declaration of a personal allegiance to someone or something. So if you go back to that traffic courtroom with me, and, and let's say I did this instead of confessing my guilt, I, I confessed my undying love for my then girlfriend, now wife, Savannah, right? I just, that's what I led with. Yeah, I know I was speeding, but you don't understand. Like, let me tell you how awesome she is, right? How dedicated I am to her. One, that would have been weird. Two, I still would have had to pay a fine, right? But that is the type of confession the author is talking about here. Let us hold fast to this public profession of faith. That's what we're called to do without wavering. And as Pastor Jim preached a couple weeks ago on, on John 15, if we do that, hard times will come, right? right? We will be persecuted. They will hate us because of our love for Christ. And so naturally, when those hard times come, what do we want to do? We want to loosen our grasp on this just a little bit. Because if we loosen our grasp just a little bit, maybe the hard times will subside, right? Let go of this Christian thing just a little bit. But here we're commanded to hold fast. We're, hold, we're told to do it without wavering. So how do we do that? Well, in my quiet time, I've been walking through the Psalms and, and it just happened to fall yesterday that I came upon Psalm 66, which of course was not a coincidence at all. But as I'm reading through this Psalm, um, it, it ties in perfectly with where uh, the author of Hebrews takes us. And so I just want to walk through this psalm really quick with you. But in Psalm 66, verse 1, it says this, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise and say to God, how awesome are your deeds. Right? This is worship. This is what we're reading in Psalms. This is worship. This is them drawing near and praising their God. And it continues in verse 5. Come and see what God has done. 
He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land and they passed through the river on foot. And there did we rejoice in him. And so what we see the Israelites who would have been singing this psalm doing is remembering, right? They're reminding themselves of what? They're reminding themselves of the faithfulness of God. You know, we think of um, them setting up memorial stones, you know, when they cross the River Jordan as a remembrance of God's faithfulness. That's what they're doing here. Verse 10 continues in this psalm, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. So what we see them is reminding themselves of God's faithfulness. Why? Because they're facing tough times, right? They're going through trials. But it's this remembering God's faithfulness that leads them to do what they do in verse 16 when they say, come in here, all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul right? It leads to holding fast. It leads to continued worship, which is what we're commanded to do here in Hebrews 10. See, likewise today, as we are commanded to hold fast, we will go through tough times. We will be tempted to waver. We will be tempted to let go. But the text continues and says at the end of verse 23, for he who promised is faithful, right? So when those hard times come, when we're tempted to to let go and not hold fast anymore, we're told to remember that he is faithful. You know where the Israelites would use these psalms? They would use them in corporate worship. They would sing these songs to each other. They would sing these songs to God. These psalms were meant as um, encouragement to them, uh, encouraging them to hold fast. They were meant as worship to God, and they were meant to remind them of God's faithfulness. The same thing happens for us when we come here, right? Because we come here, and, and together we lift up our voices in in praise to God. And most commonly, what are we singing of? We're singing of God's faithfulness to us, right? Where we're reminding each other of God's faithfulness. But not only that, we're reminded through the preaching of God's word, which from first page to last is a picture of God's faithfulness to his people, right? It's a a picture of him pursuing his people all the way through. We have an entire book declaring God's faithfulness to us. And as time spent hearing from that book, that encourages us and reminds us of who God is and, and causes us to hold fast. This is why Paul said to Timothy, Preach the word, right? Preach the word. That's what the command was. It's also here where we lift our voices in prayer to this God who is faithful and who was faithful and who will always be faithful. So we need church. It's where we come to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. We come to worship, yes. We come to be reminded of his faithfulness. And yet there's another reason why we come, and that's what we find in verses 24 and 25. It says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here we're given a very specific way that by coming to church, by coming to worship, by coming and being encouraged and and strengthened by his word, we are also to come and consider one another. In fact, as we are getting ready for church in the morning, we should be thinking, how can I come and encourage one another? But let's be honest, how many of us actually do that? I'll be the first to say that that's often not my thought on a Sunday morning when I'm coming to worship is, how can I be an encouragement to someone else? Usually the thoughts are a little more self-centered, you know? Um, Do I have to go to church this morning, right? Those are often more of the lines that we tend to think along. But this word consider it, it's, it means more than to just flippantly think about. 
You know, like if you're considering whether you want pizza or tacos, obviously it's pizza every time, right? Hands down, that's what you're going to choose. This word means something more though. It means more than just something like that. It means to give special attention to. See, we're in this together. And so we should focus on one another. Do you remember Philippians 2.3? It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Not an easy thing to do, but is what we're commanded to do as we come together in worship. Or John 13.34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And we know how Christ loved us, right? Sacrificial, right? Giving his all for uh, some verse 35 continues by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So how do we consider one another? Well, it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take boldness. It's going to take intentionality. It's going to take a willingness, but ultimately it's going to take a, a willingness to be here and a willingness to be known. That's what it's going to take. And the author gives us two ways that, that we are to consider one another. The first one is to, to let us stir up one another to love and good works. This word stir up is actually used pretty negatively. Um, and it's usually meant to signify the idea of provoking one another or agitating one another. So I have three kids. And what I picture when I hear that word is one of my kids doing something that's annoying another one of my kids. And they just continue to push the button, right? Because they're waiting for the explosion to happen, right? They're just waiting for something to happen. They're, they're agitating. They're pushing someone's buttons. In one sense, that's what the author's calling us to do. Not out of a negative sense, though, not trying to, to conjure up a negative reaction, but to do what? To encourage them to, to love and good works, encouraging them to live out their faith, which means if we're going to do this, we have to know people, right? We have to know what buttons to push. We have to know what makes them tick. Um, it means we have to be willing to get involved in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can only do that by being here and being known. Some would say we're to get all up in their business, right? We're supposed to know the ins and outs, right? And this won't always be easy. Absolutely, it won't be. It'll often be messy. That's just the truth. It'll often not feel good on either side. You know, when you're provoking and you're agitating and you're using the word of God to prod and to pry. And it won't always feel loving, but it is, and it's commanded. You know, we're to check in and ask how, how we're doing. And when someone's told you I'm good for the eighth week in a row, chances are they're probably not, right? So maybe we push that little bit further and, and pry that little bit more. We're, we're to do this to call each other from back from the edge of sin, right? Hebrews 3 tells us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So you remember that command to hold fast, right? Sin, we will become calloused. We can, we can be tempted to fall away. And it's our job for each other as we come together to stir up one another to love and good works, to keep them faithful. And it's through the word of God that that happens. We take the word of God that we hear here, and we apply it to each other's lives, and we, and we encourage each other in that way. We, we use um, time together where we ask questions. We get into their lives. We get to know them. This is ultimately what discipleship is, right? It's that love and that pouring out into each other. So we're to provoke one another to love and good works. We're also to 
encourage one another. That's the second half of that command. So as we're provoking and agitating and, and pushing the buttons, at the same time, we're encouraging each other. That means to earnestly support one another. So this place is meant to be a refuge. It's meant to be a place where we can come and be held up. It's meant to be a place where we can come and be real and be encouraged and be strengthened by time spent together. You know, we're to support one another through tough times at school. You know, our students are facing some of the hardest times, I believe, in a long time to be a believer. You know, they're, they're getting peppered on all sides. And this is, this is why the church is necessary for our students. They need a place of refuge. You know, we, we are to support one another through hard times at home, through difficult times at work. And yeah, we're even supposed to encourage one another through the good times, right? To celebrate moments in each other's lives. We're to help hold each other up. In fact, if you have time this afternoon, I'd encourage you to go on a journey through the book of Acts. And just, just anytime you see the word encourage or encouragement or the idea of encouragement there in the text, just make note of it. You'll see it all over the place. That's because it's always been meant to be a part of the church. It's always been a reason to come together to encourage one another. Just as Christ loved us, we are to love each other. You know, so how do we actually do these two things? Because the truth is, it's hard to do that in this room, right? You come in here, you sit, you listen to the word, you lift your songs and praise, all good things and all ways that we encourage each other to stand alongside brothers and sisters in Christ and sing of how worthy is the lamb, right? To, to sing those praises to God is a good thing. To sit under the word of God together is a good thing. But the command is more specific. It's more personal. You know, we're supposed to be more intimate with each other. You know, so if this hour is it for you, it's not wasted. Not at all. It never will be. The word of God never returns void. But this is why Stables Mill has what they call life groups. This is why many churches have some form of discipleship groups or Sunday school time where people can gather in a more intimate setting and, and get to know one another in a more real way. This is why they exist. It's to put into practice verses 24 and 25, which are, by the way, commands that we are to carry out within the church. And as I was thinking about this over the, the past few weeks, uh, my mind was cast back to this time in our lives in uh, 2014, when Savannah and I were actually members here um, at Stables Mill. We'd been members for about six months at that point. And um, Savannah was pregnant with our third child and she gave birth to Carrington in September. And about two weeks after she gave birth, we got news that um, kind of shook us a little bit, sent our world for a spin when she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis. You know, and so as parents who had never really heard that word before, we obviously do what you're not supposed to do as a parent. And you Google cystic fibrosis, and then you add words like life expectancy and issues and those types of things, and you start to panic, right? Your world starts to spin, and honestly, you start to question God a little bit. That's just a pretty natural response, I think. Um, we have no reason to, but it's just what we do. Um, and so I remember vividly just coming to, to church that next week, and Savannah was home with, with uh, Carrington. And so I'm in life group and I'm giving a little bit of an update. And, and I, I can just see that they know, like, I'm, I'm good, but I'm not good. You know what I mean? Like, you're, you're trying to trust, but, but you're, you're just struggling. And so I'll never forget it because I'm pretty sure it wasn't in the plans that, that week. But to put me in the center of a room and, and surround, I didn't get emotional first service. It's just getting worse each service. Um, but to surround me and to pray for our family, you know what I mean? Like that's encouragement, that's supporting, that's a, that's, um, a refuge, right? When, when things are spinning and things are getting tough, it's also provoking each other in that group 
right? It's, it's encouraging them, hey, this is what we're called to do, right? It's stirring them up to love and good works. And I tell you that story because that is, that's the picture that, that Hebrews is painting, right? That's what we are to be. That's, that's the command. And I tell you that because to encourage you as a church, what you have going on with life groups and those types of things here is, is good and it's right and it's biblical and it's awesome, right? And so continue in that. Don't ever give that up. It's, it's, it's biblical and we shouldn't forsake it. And I also tell you that story for those of you who maybe are on the fence about whether that's a step that you want to take. Like, like I said, if this hour is it, no shame in that, right? This is an hour that's well invested, but God's calling you deeper. And maybe, maybe you've been considering whether that's a step you want to take to join a life group or join some type of more intimate Bible study or, or setting. I would encourage you to do it. And not just because of what you will get from it, but because of what you can give to it, right? This is how we live out our faith here. This is how we love as Christ loved us. And so as we close this morning and, and just ask the question again, what's the point? Well, I think this text has been pretty clear to us. You know, first we come because we are privileged people who've been given faith. We're people redeemed from utter despair solely because of the work of Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I urge you, I implore you, I beg of you, make today the day that you do that. If you don't know this Christ that we speak of, and you don't understand the sacrifice he made on your behalf to, to allow you to enter into God's presence, enter into a relationship with him and, and serve him as Lord of your life, there's no greater decision you can make. I, I promise you that. And so if, if, if you've not made that decision, I know at the end of service, Pastor Jim's here and usually uh, another couple's over here. Why not today have some of those conversations if you need some, some clarity on some things? I'd be willing to talk to you as well. But it's all because of Christ that we're here. But secondly, we come to be strengthened in our hope, right? We come to hold fast to our hope. We come to be emboldened. The world will and does hate us because of our faithfulness to Christ. That's not going to change, but this word faithfully preached and applied will strengthen us and encourage us and equip us to hold fast as we remember his faithfulness. And, and thirdly, we come for each other. We come to stir up one another. We come to encourage one another. We come out of a love for each other that can only be described as a sacrificial love because that's what Christ did for us.